0: Brothers and sisters, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, I do pray that you would make us those uh, who truly do tremble at your word. Uh, Help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly uh, and with grace this day. Uh, And give us hearts and minds that are ready to receive your word, uh, to trust your word, uh, and to be changed by your word. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever you do, do not go into my dark room. Uh, that's what my granddad used to say, probably not in quite as ominous a tone as that. Uh, but my granddad was an extremely keen photographer, uh, so much so that, that he and my grandma had decided to set aside a whole room in their house for his photography. It was Granddad's dark room. You know, all the windows were blacked out. Uh, so that he could get busy developing all his photos all his cameras were in there his lenses were in there all the kind of special chemicals that he needed uh, to develop all the photos in this kind of pre-digital photography era uh, this was dark room. it was full of stuff that was precious to him stuff that he didn't want the hands of little grandchildren getting onto and rearranging it and making changes to uh, so that was the one room in my grandparents house that we just weren't allowed to go into. I wonder, if your life was a house, which room do you think you might be tempted to say to Jesus, Jesus, you're just not allowed to go into this room? Because the reality is, when you become a Christian, by the power of his spirit, Jesus comes to live in your heart. He takes up residence in your life. And he commences a, a massive renovation project, an extreme makeover, if you like. Extreme, and not in the sense that all the changes happen at once, right? That'd just be exhausting for us. But extreme in the sense that the changes ultimately will affect every single part of our life, every room in our life, if you like. But we sure do resist Jesus, right? No room is off limits to Jesus, Uh, But we resist Jesus. We say to Jesus, Jesus, you're just not allowed to go into that room. I don't like the sound of the changes you want to make in that room. There's stuff in that room that's precious to me that I don't want to let go of. I just don't like the sound of the changes you're going to make. I wonder if your life was a house, which room might you be tempted to say to Jesus, Jesus, you're just not allowed to go into that room. I started with this illustration in particular, but because Jesus, uh, in today's passage, is going to be teaching on some topics that are really quite personal. For some of you, they'll just be a kind of abstract, kind of intellectual exercise, a curiosity, but for others, there'll be real-life issues that you're grappling with, marriage and divorce and singleness. Now, these sort of topics, you might be tempted to say to Jesus, Jesus Oh, I just don't want to hear what you've got to say about that. It's just too hard. Uh, but being a Christian, by being someone who trusts and follows Jesus, it means that you let the King Jesus who gave his life for you uh, into every room of your life. Uh, even if you don't like the sound of the changes he's going to make. we've seen over the past couple of months that that, uh, Jesus has largely rejected the Jewish religious establishment of his day. He's forming, uh, you might remember back in chapter 16, he said he's building his church. Jesus is forming a a new community, a new assembly, a a kingdom uh, built around him as God's king. And it's very clear from the preceding chapters uh, that Jesus, as God's king, if you choose to trust and follow him, expects to be able to make changes to every part of your life, Uh, even the the most personal parts. Uh, So last week, he he put his finger on the whole issue of money and wealth and possessions. He said, if you follow me, there's going to have to be changes in the way you think about that stuff. Uh, This week, he gets even more personal marriage, divorce, singleness. The point is that being a Christian, it means that you let the King Jesus who gave his life for you into every room of your life. Even if you don't like the sound of the changes he's going to make. I say the King Jesus who gave his life for you because from this point in Matthew's Gospel, Uh, The shadow of Jesus' death on the cross really starts to loom large over over his whole gospel, and it looms large over today's passage. Uh, So first, uh, I want us to see in verses 1 and 2 what I've called Jesus' compassionate healings uh, in the shadow of the cross. Uh, Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Matthew says, "Uh, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, uh, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, uh, and he healed them there. So, so Matthew tells us Jesus leaves Galilee and, and heads across the Jordan re- uh, River uh, into the region of Judea. Uh, in doing so, uh, you, you might remember that in chapter 15, verse 21, to, through to the end of chapter 15, uh, Jesus spent a chunk of time doing ministry in Gentile territory, right? in areas that, that uh, weren't predominantly Jewish. And now Jesus is heading into Judea, a a predominantly Jewish territory. Uh, The point is that throughout the course of Jesus' public ministry, uh, both Jews and Gentiles had the opportunity to trust and follow Jesus. Uh, But in the end, they both rejected Jesus. The Jewish people, as represented by their own religious leaders, uh, the Gentiles, as represented by the, the Roman governor Pilate, Both of them, instead of taking up the opportunity to to trust and follow Jesus, instead took up the opportunity to crucify Jesus. The shadow of Jesus' cross looms large over this passage. And when Matthew tells us that, that Jesus leaves Galilee and heads into Judea, where he would ultimately give his life in Jerusalem, he's telling us that there's been a real shift in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, to his death on the cross. He knows that that is where he is headed. And yet, despite that resolute focus of Jesus' life, he has the time to stop and heal these crowds. Asachi is Jesus' compassion for, for, for those who come to him in need and brokenness and sickness. He would set aside his agenda to lay his hands upon them and heal them. You say, maybe, why, why wouldn't Jesus keep on doing that forever? Well, because Jesus knows that to ultimately heal the deepest problem that these crowds had, to, to, heal their, to heal them spiritually, he didn't just have to lay his hands on them, he had to lay down his life for them on the cross. These are Jesus' compassionate healings in the shadow of the cross. And then in verse 3, uh, we come to, to what I've called uh, the Pharisees' testing question. Uh, their very testing question uh, in the shadow of the cross. You know, Jesus is busy healing these crowds. Uh, and these Jewish leaders, notice the Pharisees, come to him, uh, Matthew says, to test him, to trap him. And they ask Jesus, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? As experts in, in the Jewish law, that the Pharisees knew that, that uh, God's law did uh, permit divorce. Uh, so the, the real question here is not uh, whether divorce is on the table at all, uh, but what are the, the acceptable reasons for divorce? In asking that question, the, the Pharisees are trying to draw, draw Jesus in uh, to a particular controversy amongst Jewish teachers in his day. Uh, There there are essentially uh, two schools of thought uh, about how to interpret uh, a particular passage in God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Uh, Let me read that verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Uh, It says, If a man marries a woman uh, who becomes displeasing to him uh, because he finds something indecent about her, uh, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, uh, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house. And now the, the, the law goes on. I'm sure some of you, even as you hear that verse, are already thinking, man, like this is hard to hear. Now, that law, as it stands, it, it's just so patriarchal. It's so archaic. It, it only gives husbands the, the right to divorce their wives. Oh, well, what about the, the right of the wife to divorce her husband? And I understand those feelings, right? But, but uh, we do have to remember that in this original con- in the original context of that law, uh, it was radically countercultural. It, it was concerned with, uh, at least to some extent, protecting the rights of women. And you've got a husband uh, who actually has to provide reasons for divorcing his wife. That was unusual. He has to write the reasons down on a certificate that, that would have been examined by uh, some sort of civil magistrate uh, to determine whether those reasons were legitimate. I understand this this law is hard to hear, but but the reality is it was, in its context, it was radically countercultural. But the crux of the debate in Jesus' day uh, was to do with different interpretations of this verse, in particular. uh, This verse says that that a husband's allowed to divorce his wife uh, if he finds something indecent with her. Uh, So the question the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders were debating is, what's something indecent? And there were essentially two schools of thought in Jesus' day. On the one hand, uh, there was a guy named Rabbi Hillel, and he believed, he and his followers uh, believed, that something indecent was basically anything that displeased a husband. You know, it could be a a cold cup of tea, uh, it could be uh, an uh, an outfit that he didn't like, uh, basically anything that displeased him. That was grounds for divorce. On the other hand, there was a guy named Rabbi Shammai and his followers, and they believed that something indecent here uh, only referred... Uh, to adultery, or, or more broadly, sexual immorality, including other forms of sexual sin. So on the one hand, you've got Rabbi Hillel, uh, who had what you might call a, a quite uh, a culturally progressive view, a, a liberal view of marriage, uh, believing that the purpose of marriage was to produce happiness. Uh, so if a marriage wasn't producing happiness, then divorce was the, the only option you could take. On the other hand, you had Rabbi uh, Shammai, uh, who was more of a traditionalist. Had a very conservative view of marriage, believing that, that marriage uh, was a permanent and binding relationship, relationship a lifelong relationship. Uh, and divorce should only be considered uh, when it's absolutely necessary. You yeah, these two schools of thought. And it might be surprising, uh, considering how legalistic they are about other things, uh, to know that the Pharisees actually uh, were kind of followers of Rabbi Hillel they had a really quite progressive view of marriage and divorce. So they come to Jesus and ask this question. Jesus, what do you think about this issue? They know that if they can get Jesus to publicly align himself with one of these Jewish schools, the other side will vigorously oppose him. They'll want to get rid of him. In asking these question, in this question, are the Pharisees set a religious trap for Jesus? Are they also set a political trap? Where is Jesus? Look at the text. Jesus is in Judea. This is a territory, you might remember back from Matthew chapter 14, it's a territory that's ruled by a guy named Herod Antipas. A Herod Antipas who had a very dubious marriage to his sister-in-law, Herodias. You remember in Matthew 14 that John the Baptist criticized that marriage and he ended up dead. So here, the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus is in Herod's territory, essentially say to him, Jesus, what do you think about Herod's marriage? Hoping that he'll criticise Herod's marriage and that he too will end up dead. This is the Pharisees' testing question. It's a religious trap. It's a political trap. It tells us that all of this happens under the shadow of Jesus' cross. So in verses 4 to 12, we have Jesus' wise answer. And it's really clear that in verses 4 to 6, that Jesus doesn't want to debate with the Pharisees about the acceptable grounds for divorce, at least not primarily. Primarily, he wants to teach them about God's good intention for marriage. And in doing that, he goes all the way back to God's original creation of marriage in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, not to discussing Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. In so doing, I reckon he outlines at least five biblical principles about marriage. You can write them down if you like. The first is that Jesus says marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. Some of you say, that's outrageous. You know, the, the Jesus I know would never say that. Marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. Well, look at verse 4. Jesus quotes Genesis 1 verse 27 saying, At the beginning the Creator made them male and female. In the context of the Pharisee's question about marriage and divorce, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is saying God's good intention from the very beginning was that marriage would be a relationship between a man and a woman. It's even clearer in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. I know this is pretty controversial. I understand that. Perhaps some of you are already thinking, Jesus, I don't want to hear what you've got to say about this. I'm happy, to have, happy for you to have your say about this and that and the other thing, but you're just not allowed into that room. Uh, but here Jesus does have his say. Uh, and he says that, that as far as he's concerned, uh, marriage has always been a relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, that's not to say that, that same-sex couples can't have uh, very loving and committed, to, uh, committed relationships. It's just to say that the Jesus we meet here in the Bible would not consider those relationships to be marriages. Because marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. Second, marriage is a relationship between equals. The Pharisees would have considered women to be really second-rate citizens, but basically the property of men. Uh, but in quoting these verses from the end of chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, uh, about men and women, husbands and wives, but being created in God's image, uh, Jesus is saying that in any talk about marriage and divorce, uh, we must ensure that both men and women are treated with the same dignity and respect uh, as equally made in God's image. Right? Marriage is a relationship between equals. A third uh, marriage uh, should be honoured and preserved uh, because for the married couple, their relationship with one another is their ultimate human relationship. Uh, look at verse 5. Jesus quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. Uh, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother uh, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Right? For the married couple, Uh, Their obligation to one another and to their new family uh, far surpasses any obligation they have to their biological families uh, or or to any other relationship. Uh, So so marriages should be honored and preserved uh, because for the married couple, their marriage uh, is their ultimate human relationship. Fourth, marriages should be honoured and preserved because the union between husband and wife is both profound and deep. Many people today think that marriage is nothing more than a contract or perhaps even a lifelong partnership of some kind designed to help individuals reach their own personal goals, their own personal fulfilment and happiness. As if that's not happening, well, you just get rid of the contract. Jesus says marriage is far more than that. Look at verse 6. In marriage, people from two different families become one new family. In fact, it's deeper than that. Two different people become one new person. They become one flesh. So we should always seek to preserve and honour marriages because the union between husband and wife is deep. And profound. A fifth marriage is a relationship uh, that is ruled by God. Have a look in verse 6. And Jesus says, What God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, the Pharisees would have thought uh, that husbands had exclusive authority over marriage. And Jesus says, No, you've got it wrong. It's God who has exclusive authority over marriage. It's God who unites a man and woman together in marriage, in that one flesh union, and it's only God who has the authority to separate that union in divorce. It's clear from verses 4 to 6 that God's good intention for marriage is that every marriage would be a lifelong relationship, a permanent and binding relationship. From that perspective, divorce is never God's will. And that's why there are passages in the Bible like Malachi 2 verse 16, where we say, it says that God hates divorce. Right? He hates divorce because he knows what marriage is. He knows that in marriage, husband and wife are united together in this one flesh union. And that to separate that union it takes an extremely painful and risky operation. Perhaps a little bit like an operation to separate conjoined twins who've been one flesh for years. It's very risky. It's not just a matter of signing some papers. Jesus says that kind of operation should be avoided at all costs. God's good intention for marriage is that marriage would be a lifelong relationship. Uh, But in verses 7 and 8, Jesus speaks uh, about God's merciful concession, uh, his concession of divorce. Look in verse 7. The Pharisees asked Jesus, uh, Why then did Moses command uh, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Uh, That's another reference to Deuteronomy 24. You, You hear that. And now Jesus agrees with the Pharisees that God's law uh, did make uh, some sort of provision for divorce. But in verse 8, he says it's a bit different to what the Pharisees are saying. Look, what, look at Jesus' words in verse 8. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Well, not commanded, but permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. So, Jesus says, yes, you're right, that there was a concession in God's law uh, that in certain limited circumstances, divorce was permissible. Uh, but it was only because of your hard and sinful hearts. Now, that statement of Jesus is equal parts challenging and comforting. It's challenging because it says uh, that every divorce is the tragic result of sin of our hard and sinful hearts. That's important to remember because since 1975 in Australia, we've had what's called no-fault divorce laws. So when a couple wants to divorce, they don't actually have to establish any fault. They just have to prove that they've been separated for 12 months, legally separated. Well, I think here Jesus is saying that there's really no such thing as no-fault divorce. Every divorce is the tragic result of our hard and sinful hearts. That's challenging. On the other hand, it's comforting. It's comforting but because God is just so, so incredibly merciful. God knows that sometimes our hard and sinful hearts will pervert and distort a marriage so much that to stay in that marriage would be even worse than proceeding with a divorce. So God concedes, rather, right, that sometimes in the misery and brokenness of our world, that sometimes divorce is necessary. But we should never be casual about it. Heed Jesus' warning in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Well, it's pretty clear that Jesus does p- permit divorce in certain circumstances, right? namely uh, in the instance of sexual immorality. Uh, that, that's a term uh, that it, it kind of includes adultery, but it's not limited to adultery. It includes uh, a range of other sexual sins. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, uh, Paul says that if a husband or, or wife deserts their Christian spouse, and I think that that desertion, this is debated to some extent, but I think that diver, uh, desertion could be geographical, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be sexual, if this kind of willful desertion happens, then the Christian spouse is not bound to that marriage. And if they want to, they are free to remarry. It's pretty clear that both Jesus and Paul in the early church permitted divorce and remarriage in certain circumstances, but not for any and every reason. As the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 3. You see what's going on here? Jesus is warning the Pharisees. And if they keep taking the the kind of casual approach to divorce and remarriage that they're currently taking, an approach that many people in our own culture take, uh, that in God's eyes, they're actually committing adultery. Uh, Because in God's eyes, their previous marriage, their their first marriage was never truly separated. Uh, The one flesh union uh, just wasn't dissolved. No, I understand this is pretty heavy territory. Remember, where we started, you might be tempted to say to Jesus, Jesus, oh, I don't want to hear what you've got to say about this. It's just too hard. I don't like the sound of the changes you're going to make here. But if you're a Christian, Jesus wants you to trust him, to listen to him. He wants you to be clear on this. And to be clear. Right, he's warning us in this passage uh, that if someone divorces their husband or wife uh, for what you might call unbiblical reasons, right, something that, that just doesn't fall under the banner uh, of either sexual immorality uh, or willful desertion, uh, and that person remarries, uh, they're actually committing adultery uh, because their first union in marriage just was never separated, On the other hand, if someone divorces their husband or wife for biblical reasons, right, for sexual immorality or willful desertion, then in God's eyes, their first marriage was dissolved and they're free to remarry. And all this is pretty intense. I understand that. Before we move on, I want to speak briefly to three specific pastoral situations. The first is, I know that there might be some people listening today, maybe this is you, And as you sit and listen to this day, uh, you're actually uh, realising that you've fallen out of love with your husband or wife, Uh, to such an extent that you're contemplating separation, divorce, uh, and maybe even remarrying someone that you really do love. Uh, Well, I want you to hear, I think Jesus has been clear in this passage that falling out of love with your husband or wife is just not an acceptable grounds for divorce. God's intention is that every marriage would be a lifelong relationship. And when you got married, you would have made promises to that effect. So my encouragement to you this day, if you feel that you've fallen out of love with your husband and wife, my encouragement to both of you together is to recommit yourselves to those covenant promises you made to one another. Because it's only when your commitment to those covenant promises uh, goes deep into the ground, those roots sink deep into the ground, uh, that the the flower of your love, if you like, the feelings of your love, uh, will once again begin to bloom and maybe even one day flourish. Uh, Please speak to me about that. Please speak to a trusted Christian friend about that, uh, if you're thinking along those lines. a Second, And maybe uh, there's someone listening today uh, who's uh, married to someone who has actually been sexually unfaithful or or perhaps has uh, kind of deserted you in some way, willfully, repeatedly, uh, whether it be physically or or emotionally or or sexually. In that case, there are biblical grounds for divorce. Uh, But that doesn't mean that God wants you to divorce. God's preference is always that marriages would be lifelong, that broken and kind of just messed up marriages would be restored and healed. That's God's preference. So if you're considering separation and divorce today, as you listen to this sermon, let me urge you to please first speak to me, speak to Pastor Adam, speak to a trusted Christian friend. Because we'd first, uh, we first want to check that you're, you're safe, that you're actually safe in your situation. But second, if you are safe, we'd love to meet with you, to talk with you, to pray with you, that, that somehow, by the power of his gospel, God would bring healing and restoration to your marriage. Uh, the third situation I want to speak to is, is that there might be some people listening who, who feel convicted that you've already kind of taken steps to, towards uh, an unbiblical separation or divorce. You've already sinned in that way. At least that's what you feel as you listen. Maybe you're even wondering if God will forgive you for that. And I just want to assure, assure you that he will. Sometimes we think that Jesus only died on the cross for our respectable sins, the sins we kind of feel okay about, and not the really shameful ones. But Jesus died on the cross for all our sins, even the the sins that really burden us, that we're really ashamed of. Jesus died for all of our sins. So if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross, you will be forgiven of all your sins. Of course, if you are separated, you are divorced and you're conscious that maybe that divorce wasn't biblical in God's eyes. If you're not already remarried, let me urge you to heed Jesus' warning in verse 9. Stay single so you can be single-minded in your devotion to Christ and his kingdom. Which is where the end of the passage comes in, all that that strange talk about eunuchs. Right? Here in these verses, Jesus is calling all of us, whether we're married or single, uh, to be single-minded in our devotion to his kingdom. In verse 10, Jesus' disciples say, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's just better not to marry. Right? They understand that Jesus has taken a pretty conservative position on divorce and remarriage. And they're kind of like, it'd be far better just to be single, to be free. And so in verse 11, Jesus says, uh, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And now when Jesus says this word there, uh, he's not referring to his teaching in verses four to nine, right? He's referring to the word of his disciples in verse 10. In a sense, he's saying, you're right, right? Your attitude might be wrong, but what you've said is right. And there's a sense in which marriage is restrictive, Because it can reduce your capacity to be single-minded in your devotion to Christ and his kingdom. So Jesus affirms that for some people, it would be better for them to stay single. But only to those to whom it has been given. That is only to those who, by God's grace, have the capacity to stay single and honour God with their sexuality. To remain sexually pure and jesus says some people can do that right he lists some of them in verse 12 are those first who are born as eunuchs Uh, that is to say those who are sexually impotent a second those uh, who are made eunuchs by others Uh, this is a a reference to men in in jesus day who would have been castrated to serve in a royal court Uh, but perhaps most kind of relevantly for us are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that is those who've decided that they won't get married because they want to be free and to be single-minded in their devotion to Christ and his kingdom. So it's pretty clear that the Jesus, right, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, if you read that chapter later on, it's pretty clear that both of them have a very, very high regard for marriage. But perhaps an even higher regard Uh, For those who who make uh, a faith-filled choice uh, to be single-minded, to stay single, uh, so they can be single-minded in their devotion to the kingdom of God. I wonder what it would look like for us as a church uh, to hold singleness with the same high regard as Jesus. Here's some thoughts. I reckon it would mean recognizing that our single brothers and sisters enjoy the love and intimacy of being married to Christ. That's the first and most important marriage that anyone can experience. So we mustn't kind of automatically assume that they're all lonely and kind of emotionally impoverished. It's just not true. Uh, We've got to remember uh, and talk about the fact that that being a part of God's family is the first and most important family to be a part of. And I'm not assuming that that somehow our single brothers and sisters are missing out because they're not married with kids. In fact, I want us to be a church uh, where we ask one another more often, how are you going as a child of God? Uh, than we say, how are your children going? It's not that it's wrong to ask people about their kids. It's a perfectly fine question. But we want to see that our primary identity is as a child of God. I want us to be a church that encourages single people to seriously consider, seriously consider staying single. Or not so they can be devoted to themselves and their interests, but so they can be single-minded in their devotion to Christ and his kingdom without all the the concerns and anxieties uh, that come with marriage and kids. But of course, in the end, that's Christ's call to all of us, Uh, whether we're married or single. His call uh, is that we would be single-minded in our devotion to him. And let me say today that that single-minded devotion starts... By allowing Jesus' teaching to shape every part of your life. Every every room of your life. Even the rooms that you just don't want to let Jesus into. Now some of you are scared about that. You know that if you let Jesus into this room or that room or the other room, uh, that he's going to make changes that you feel uncomfortable about, that you feel anxious about. But let me say, it's safe for you to let Jesus into that room. How do you know it's safe? You know it's safe because this is the King Jesus who gave his life for you. The shadows of the cross that are all over this passage point towards Jesus' actual cross, his cross, on which he gave his life for you. So you can let Jesus into any part of your life and trust him to make changes that are for your good. Being a Christian it means that you let the King Jesus who gave his life for you into every room of your life even the rooms uh, where you you don't like the sound of the changes he's going to make let's pray oh our gracious father uh, we thank you for this your word and we pray that you would give us the humility and the grace uh, to trust your word uh, to receive your word into our hearts and minds uh, and to be willing to be changed by it to the glory of our Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us. Amen.